Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The shadowy figure emerged from the staircase onto the roof of the hospital, the tallest building in Tokyo at the time. The series of lies and bluffs that he had used to this point had in fact worked, gaining him access to the spot in the city skyline he would need to complete his mission. From beneath his kimono, he drew a small movie camera and began to pan the view before him, albeit draped under the cover of night. This included the harbor and the industrial district of Tokyo, which was comprised of munitions plants and military factories. After several minutes of filming and picture taking, the man puts the camera back under his kimono, retreats from the roof, and quietly makes his way back down the stairs, as if he had never even been there. It was late, and in less than 24 hours, he would be taking the field with his teammates in front of thousands of adoring fans. Sound like a Cold War spy thriller, a Hollywood action film, or maybe just another amazing episode of your favorite podcast. In the world of espionage, question everything, except what you're about to hear now on The Missing Chapter. In Season 2, Episode 29, Happy Birthday to Who, I told the story behind the iconic song that has become synonymous with birthday celebrations around the world, And you've heard Phil and I wish our loved ones happy birthday on past episodes of The Missing Chapter. Now, we want to extend that on-air shout-out opportunity to you, our loyal listeners. Email us at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram and let us do the rest. Birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, what better way to celebrate life's accomplishments than with a personalized message on one of Spotify's most popular podcasts. So email us today at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or message us on social media and let's get started. I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horner, And we look forward to adding one of your celebrations to the History Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Uh, before we get started with the episode, uh, it's mid-April, mm-hmm. late April, I should say. Um, there's a couple of things we want to address. First, we'll get to our coffee, a blueberry Duncan, which was a fantastic uh, brew today. Love our flavored coffees. It was recommended by one of our students. So Autumn Arduin, if you're listening, thank you for the recommendation. Uh, fantastic choice. And we're really enjoying it. We've actually brewed two pots of coffee today. Yeah. And you know what? Like during the summer, I, I like uh, Duncan iced blueberry. Yeah. I've never really gotten into their, their hot blueberry, but this is really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to make sure and mention is uh, it is my mom's birthday on April 30th. So mom, if you are listening, which I know you are, it's one of our, she's one of our avid listeners. And we even have uh, a message from a one mama Shaw mm-hmm. in the inbox. So thank you, mom. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I love doing this is because it, it gives you joy and you've done an exceptional job of giving all of your kids and your family joy throughout our lives. So thank you and happy birthday, mom. Now, today, uh, this one is an interesting one, Phil. You've, you've given me a little snippet of it, a little bit more than just the intro. Um, what I like about this is there's it's multifaceted. Right, right. So, you know, without giving too much away, um, I think the, the, the title of this really does it justice, too. Well, Phil, you brought up something interesting in that this actually... 
um, the the concept, the idea from this came from my mother, my parents, oh, wow. who are also avid listeners to the missing chapter. Sure. Um, and and one day uh, I was speaking with my my parents. They said, "Are you familiar with Mo Berg?" And I thought initially, like, I don't remember going to school with a Mo Berg. I don't <laughs> I don't know who Mo Berg is. It turns out he was a professional ball player. So I'm hoping in season three, Phil, if you're a listener who's been with us for the full journey, you kind of have an idea of who we are and and some of our personal likes, sports, Mm -hmm. espionage, Mm -hmm. humor. And I kind of feel like you said, this story encapsulates all of the things that we really enjoy in one story. Yeah. Even in the intro, I think it it captured a lot of our uh, I think it's entertaining. Um, I'm almost guaranteeing you're going to learn about someone that wasn't even on your radar. I mean, Phil, you and I are, are very like avid baseball fans. Yes. We've grown up following baseball. Have you ever heard of Mo Berg? No. And you know when your parents do that to you sometimes? Yeah. Like, hey, do you know this person? You immediately, like you said. And I was like, I don't remember. That. Doesn't I don't ring a bell. This person is in yeah. my contacts. They're not one of yeah. my friends on social media. I don't remember who this Mo Berg is. Um, yeah, when you mentioned this name, I... It's weird. It has like a, an odd familiarity to it. Mm. You can't put your finger on it. I don't know if it's because of Mo Rivera. I, I don't know. So, Phil, this is going to be my challenge as we listen, right. as we listen. And, and I lay this story out for you and everyone listening to our podcast today. I'm going to ask you, based on his full criteria, baseball and life involving baseball. Yep. Is he worthy of the Hall of Fame? Oh, okay. And do okay. we, if we, maybe we start a campaign for Mo Berg to be inducted into Cooperstown. Wow. Wow. And again, it's, it's the role he played on the diamond, but also the life he lived through baseball. Correct. With almost like his quote unquote, his second identity, his second life. Now, don't forget, we had our friend, Chris Bauer, who does our introduction right. for us, uh, do an episode, um, on Bud Fowler. Right. And it was that weekend. Oddly enough, we had no idea this was going to happen. I know. Um, oddly enough, he he gets inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Right. So could this be another and, epiphany moment for the Hall of Fame? And and does it root itself in this podcast, the social media movement? Wow. To get Mo Berg, one Mo Berg into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But I'm going to let the listener and I'm going to let you decide for yourself. Right, because I'm, maybe I'm this is challenge. something like, listen, he just doesn't deserve it. Okay. All right. right. Regardless. I mean, there's because, a lot of people that I would say deserve the Hall of Fame right, that aren't. Right. Um, Jorge Posada being one of them. We had just Don Mattingly. Don Mattingly mm-hmm. is another one. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about this moment. Right. And you look at, you know, you have people in the Hall of Fame who are writers, um, you know, administrators within baseball, whether sure. they're managers or owners. So they're different uh, divisions, so to speak, within the Hall of Fame, you know, aside from just being a player. But we know baseball is a stats sport. And if oh, you have the stats, yeah. you're almost guaranteed to get inducted. Very much right? so. Yep. I don't think Mo Berg has the stats, but we'll see if the story as, as a whole okay. makes for a Hall of Fame-worthy career. Okay. Let's, okay? let's get into it. Let's All right. It. So professional baseball player Mo Berg played a total of 15 Major League Baseball seasons with four different clubs. You have the Chicago White Sox, the Cleveland Indians, the Boston Red Sox, and the Washington Senators. Which, as the story unfolds, the fact that he's in Washington for part of his career is probably not by coincidence. Okay. Berg never advanced beyond playing backup catcher, substitute shortstop. All right? Not very impressive so far. Yeah. He always sat on the bench more than he played. Nevertheless, in the year 1934, 
five years before he retired from baseball, Berg was picked to join the traveling American all-star baseball team on a trip to Japan. Hmm. Now, fellow teammates, baseball fans, writers around the world, seriously confused as to why this gentleman's on the roster. Why would a player with a lifetime average of only 243 be chosen for an all-star team, which included the likes of Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth? Makes very little sense. True. So between the intro and between that little segment, Obviously, you know where I'm leaning. You've got a lot more questions and answers. I'm going to go back a little bit further, all right? All the way to give you a little bit more background as to exactly who Mo Berg was and where he came from. Because his 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 early life is just as impressive to me as his later life. He was born on March 2nd, 1902 in a Manhattan tenement. Mm-hmm. Very poor uh, upbringing to Russian Jewish parents. Morris Berg was always somewhat mysterious. And his ascent to professional athlete from such humble beginnings is in and of itself a a remarkable feat. At seven, he began playing baseball on a neighborhood team under a pseudo name that he invented, Runt Wolf. Hmm. And there's very little insight into this other than he seems kind of like an eccentric little boy. Okay. And he likes, he's got a creative mindset. So he has a pseudo name for himself, Runt Wolf. A brilliant student in school. He speaks seven different languages at a very young age. After high school, he went on to study modern languages at the prestigious Ivy League institution called Princeton, where he continued to play baseball, often choosing to speak only in Latin or Sanskrit on the field. (laughs) What? Yeah. And it was, again, because he was a little bit more on the bizarre side, but also because as a catcher, he could relay things and talk on the field without his opponents have any idea what he was talking about. So his teammates so, are going to have to so learn. So his teammates would know a certain amount of the dialect just so he could, as a catcher, you know, openly talk to his pitcher without the batter ever having a clue as to what was going <laughs> on, which is kind of brilliant. So after graduating magna cum laude from Princeton, Berg studied French at the Sorbonne in Paris and continued on to law school at Columbia University. And while recruits noticed his skills and abilities on the baseball diamond, it was his professors, his friends, who are more impressed with his propensity for picking up foreign languages with relative ease. It's certainly, he's almost like a savant uh, when it comes to languages and his ability to speak all those different languages. And he happened to be a really good ball player too. Jeez. So in spite of his academic and intellectual accomplishments, Mo Berg decides to choose a career as an athlete right, because of his love for baseball. And ironically enough, through my research, it's something his father really resented. which kind of surprises me because his father felt like he had greater opportunities and should be more of a working uh, individual. Didn't really view playing a game like baseball as, as a job. And it's something that they kind of went back and forth on right up until the day his father passed away, which again, I kind of found ironic because if you become a, a professional ball player, you'd think you'd assume, boy, your dad would be really, you know, my my boy has achieved that ultimate status. I don't so, know if that's a, and that, that's, that is shocking. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of yeah, taken aback by that because I don't know if it's maybe a cultural thing, time period wise. Right. And I think where he came from, you know, coming to the United States and, and being a little bit more blue collar and kind of expecting that from his son. Plus that time period, you, you didn't get paid an awful lot. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. It's not baseball today for sure. So in 1923, Berg was signed by Brooklyn for whom he played shortstop and batted only uh, 186. That was his batting average in just under 50 games, 49 official games. Um, after he uh, finished up law school at Columbia in 1926, he joined the White Sox, who'd bought his contract from Reading of the International League. 
Bird became a catcher by accident uh, the next season. And this is this is in, in itself is, is crazy too. In August 1927, three Chicago catchers were injured in a matter of days. Ooh. So he was essentially fourth string. Yeah. And the three people ahead of him in less than a week were injured. He volunteers for the job. I'll play catcher. <laughs> and it ultimately, you know, he finds his niche in, in professional baseball. A deft of ha- uh, handler of pitches, a professor of a rifle arm. By 1929, he was the White Sox regular catcher. So he was really good, you know, dealing with the pitchers, calling pitches, and he had a really good arm for throwing out runners at second. He hit a career high, career high batting average uh, in that year, 1929. Uh, he batted 288 in 106 games. He received two votes, in fact, in balloting for the American League's most valuable player. Wow. So, I mean, I, I kind of led you to believe he was, for lack of a better word, kind of a scrub. Yeah, yeah. But at least at different years, different seasons in his career, he certainly excelled. Sure. And he's got his skill set that's making him a very valuable player. Out of his 15 years. Out right? of his 15 years. Okay. Unfortunately for Berg, the following year in spring training, he suffered a knee injury and spent the rest of his career. I said uh, Cleveland Indians, Washington Senators, a time with Boston as primarily a bench warmer. And when he called it quits at age 37, he had had just accumulated 441 hits at a little over 1,800 at-bats with only six home runs and 206 runs batted in. After two years as a Red Sox coach, Berg left baseball on January 14, 1942, the same day his father died. All right. Uh, It is at this point, just after the start of the United States entry into World War II, that Berg's life became the subject of much speculation. Nelson Rockefeller, all right, the New York politician, had given a job uh, to Berg with the Office of Inner American Affairs, which allowed him to travel through South and Central America, studying the health and fitness of those populations. Hmm. So let's back up a little bit and recap. I gave you a very kind of dark, mysterious, spy-like intro. I gave you some tidbits of why is Berg, of all people, with his stats on an all-star team traveling around the world. And now we're starting to realize that as soon as he retires, he gets a job with with the U.S. government. How does this all tie together? We're going to find out after the break. Hello, everybody. Welcome back uh, after the break here. And I want to point something out here, Phil. We're going to go off script a little bit. Um, not that we have a script, but, you know, let's go behind the scenes of the missing chapter for a second. Okay. Okay. Um, some things don't go as planned necessarily. Mm-hmm. I'll start off with uh, the introduction of this very episode. It took me four or five takes. Yeah. Um, just didn't sound right. Didn't really have this, I don't know, energy that we needed. So we had to, we had to redo it three or four times. Um, sometimes the schedule is very fitting for us to record uh, one segment all the way through. Sometimes mm-hmm. we have to piecemeal it. So we're really getting behind the scenes here because obviously things aren't perfect. Well, this is one of those episodes where we had to pause after the break and do a separate recording uh, for the secondary part. Right. And thank God it did because what ended up happening um, after we recorded the first half of this mm-hmm was pretty astounding. And I'm going to give you the honors of, of announcing to the uh, listeners right now of what actually happened and what conspired, I guess you could say, from that first part of the episode. Yeah. And this is pretty exciting. I think, um, you know, we kind of answered our own question that we started the episode off with, <coughs> excuse me, um, in that 
I think when you look at Moberg's resume uh, and what he did, not only as a baseball player, <coughs> but as just an American civilian. Yeah. I think you and I kind of came to the conclusion he he is deserving a, of a, a place in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, again, I go back to what we said at the beginning, Phil. You have to kind of compartmentalize why people are, are in the Hall of Fame. And you could have an umpire in the Hall of Fame. You could have a writer in the Hall of Fame. You could have a player in the Hall of Fame. And I coaches, think yeah. Coaches, he fits somewhere in the story that is American baseball. And I think we kind of ran with it after that first part of our episode yesterday. We put out a bunch of different feelers to reporters and to institutions trying to get an idea as, well, what's the process? How do you go about doing that and actually getting someone's name on the ballot? It's not easy. But the kind people at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, were actually very quick to get back to us. <coughs> and, you know, they gave us exactly how that would work. And they also pointed us in the direction where you and I could actually, you know, if not nominate him, give support to the committee who will eventually meet this year and the beginning of next year to determine who is on the ballot. And we can throw our support behind Mo Berg. And I think what you and I are going to do, Phil, is start to campaign a little bit. Reach out, use the platform that we're blessed to have, and and to hopefully get this well-deserving uh, person a position in the most esteemed you know, cathedral for American baseball. Absolutely. I, I, it was one of those moments where... Um, you know, after the first segment, we, you know, for time constraints, we had to yep. kind of adjust and, and we ended up, uh, you know, going home and, and I get a text from, from you and it says, uh, Hey, read your email. Yep. And the email was, was one of those moments where like, Oh my gosh, we, something could actually come of this. You never know. You never, you never know. know. And, the, and, you know, Phil, what, what I thought was cool too, is like, we tell kids that when they do a research paper or a project and it's like, all right, you've come up with some really good information. What are you going to do with it? You know, we're, we're not, this is not the education period where it's like, it's great to learn about something, but well, take it one step further and use that information to actually apply it. And I think we're kind of taking our own advice and we're going to try to do something with the information and the research that we, that we've done. And that's the premise of, uh, of this entire podcast. That's the mission right. is that we're highlighting the unknowns. And, and this is something as a, as a baseball fan, which we mentioned in the first half right. is we thought we, we knew baseball mm -hmm. and to have this person be that unknown, yeah. um, but have that profound of an impact, not just on the game of baseball, but as a United States citizen, I, I think is a very, very yeah. profound, and it's actually, a, I would say, um, a big advocate for one of the reasons why he should be nominated. Right. And you think, you know, it, it, he kind of, in a way, highlights something that's, that's really kind of unique about baseball in that you take the biggest names of the time, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, they took time out of their career to serve in the U.S. military. Right. And to do their, you know, their um, their just cause for the purpose of this country, and I think that's kind of he he in a way is a lesser known version of that. But by highlighting him, you highlight all of that. That's a great point. So yeah. I want to get back and if you if you enjoyed the first half of this episode, I, I think you're going to enjoy where I'm taking you the second half too. So let's get back and resume the story, almost with how we started it. Why a relatively obscure backup catcher was selected for a very very prestigious traveling All Star squad. And while the all-star team was in Tokyo, Berg, who spoke Japanese in amongst all of his other languages, slipped away and took covert movies of the Tokyo skyline, Tokyo Harbor, munitions facilities from the top of the city's tallest building. The movies were later used in the planning of U.S. bombing raids over Tokyo in 1942. 
Now, whether or not this event actually marked the beginning of Berg's involvement in espionage is kind of up for debate. Um, the Tokyo story forever kind of labeled him as a very shadowy player in baseball history. And I think because we don't really know if this is the beginning or in amongst, maybe in the middle of what he's doing for the American government, it's, it's just the nature of espionage. Like you can't be open about that. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like certain things you're not able to divulge to, to the public. So um, throughout his life, Byrd maintained that his involvement in espionage only began in earnest after he retired from baseball in 1942. But again, he really can't say otherwise. You know, according to Berg, he offered the Tokyo movie footage to the U.S. government on his own initiative and only after they officially employed him. But many who've studied Berg and his involvement with the government as an informant look at this explanation of his, you know, with doubt and understand that he would not be able to openly disclose his role with the military. Of course. Yeah. So Berg's home movies of the Tokyo skyline were used in the planning of General Jimmy uh, Doolittle's 1942 bombing raids on the Japanese capital. And the U.S. government did, we know, the U.S. government did write a letter to Berg personally, thanking him for the movies. Biographies, magazine articles, and words of mouth uh, has, have really uh, elevated this story into to stuff of legend. So it would be one thing if, if, if he was able to, or let's say, let's take the baseball aspect out mm -hmm. of this. Let's say he was a freelance photographer. Right. And served his country and, and was was contacted by the U.S. government and and they would use that in the Doolittle raids. Let's mm -hmm. just say you know a hypothetical. Um, would we hail him as a hero regardless of his baseball background? Absolutely, I think we would. And right? the thing I mean, that doesn't fit for me though, Phil, if you look at this story at face value, is why is he in Tokyo? He gets chosen for this team for a purpose, and it's by all accounts not his baseball statistics. True. So, yeah, he might have done these videos on his own, um, but why is he there in the first place? It really doesn't answer that question. Oh, that's a great point. So, in 1942, the United States Office of Strategic Services, OSS, which is the, the predecessor to the CIA, actually recruits Mo Berg, right? Recruits him like a baseball yeah. uh, player. He would work there for almost 10 years. His first mission is cast as a goodwill tour of Latin America with Nelson Rockefeller's Inter-American Affairs Committee, which I alluded to prior to the break. It was actually a means for Berg to covertly assess the willingness of Latin American political leaders to side with the U.S. in the war effort, that war uh, being World War II, which had commenced late in the prior year with the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor and subsequently the declaration of war on Japan and the Axis powers in the days that followed. On returning from Latin America, this is where... Berg really gets himself involved with some high-level missions here. Berg became a spy assigned to unveiling Nazi Germany's atomic capabilities. He was part of a potential mission to assassinate Werner Heisenberg, the director of the Nazi atom bomb research program. Berg's innate ability to, to speak many different languages, which included German, made him uniquely capable of digesting complicated scientific information. So we're saying, listen, not just you don't just speak German, you're really good at it. And the language and, and just the the overall scientific terms in German, people are having a tough time comprehending or understanding. And Berg was able to do that. So he said, we're going to give you this mission because it, it, you need to be able to speak German fluently, but also be able to comprehend the scientific dialogue. 
Yeah, and there's there's a dialect that's involved too. I, I mean, if if we take someone who is not English speaking, we tell them it's raining cats and dogs, right. and we translate that literally, that's going to make no sense to them. No gonna, sense whatsoever. Look outside, like, what right. What's going on? Um, so to have you can't just be fluent in a language. You have to know the dialect that that comes along 100%, with. One hundred percent, Phil. One hundred percent. So the former baseball player at this point is sent to to Zurich, Switzerland, to attend a lecture Heisenberg was giving about the bomb to Nazi authorities. From his reconnaissance work. Berg determined that the possibility of a Nazi atom bomb was distant, and it actually put the entire assassination plot on hold, all right, because of uh, the information, the intel he was able to collect. Berg's biographers have often pointed out, and this is kind of a, a funny element to this, a little bit lighthearted here. He was, he was kind of sloppy, if not careless. Um, he famously forgot to take off his OSS-issued government watch before undertaking secret missions abroad. Um, there was a, an inopportune moment when he was, you know, fully embedded that he actually dropped a gun that he supposedly wasn't have or didn't have. But, you know, his skill set, specifically with languages, which he had had since a very young age, was undeniable. And he was equally as resourceful and valuable during the Cold War as he had been during World War II. On at least one documented occasion, and, and people think probably more, Berg was embedded directly in the Soviet Union to use his Russian language skills during several intelligence gathering missions in the Soviet Union, where he was easily able to blend in and bring home useful information. Before Mo Berg died in 1972, he never married. He had planned to write his autobiography, which he said would reveal all the details about his career in espionage. However, especially for historians like us and just the general public, baseball fans, history fans, the book was never written. And the complete story of his spy activities, particularly how and when they began, kind of died with Moberg. The only utility player to be the subject of three biographies, few of his accomplishments came actually in the batter's box. But if we look at, again, the whole picture of who this individual was and what he did for baseball, our country, and history, really, um, you know, Moberg is a very unique individual. Um, in his 15 major league seasons, uh, in which he played just 662 games, Burke was a lifetime 243 hitter, started out as a slick fielding utility infielder before the White Sox in 1927 moved him to catcher, found his niche as a substitute backstop, filling that role until he retired in 1939, but by all accounts will be remembered as an American legend. And he's not going into areas as a reserve. He's He right. is active. I mean, he's going into the areas to see if there's a Nazi atom bomb. He's yeah. going into the Soviet Union at mm -hmm. the height of the Cold War. You're not going into these areas where it's just like, hey, uh, do some reconnaissance for us and take yeah. some pictures. You're going into the most uh, tense areas during time periods where, where we were certain there was going to be a, a nuclear holocaust. I mean, yeah. so I think if we resort back to, resort back to the uh, conversation of whether or not he should be in the Hall of Fame, uh, since that's what you started with that question, I think it's more all-encompassing. A coach that may have less of a great record but has a huge impact on mm -hmm. his players. His players eventually become professional athletes. I think that that idea would, would of course, have, have a huge impact, right? Yeah. On, on and, you know, whether it's baseball Hall of Fame, basketball Hall of Fame, NFL. Absolutely. And, and he's so unique, Phil. Like, his story is unparalleled. Right. I, I would think maybe in professional sports, not even baseball. Um. But you look at, too, the, what makes a good athlete? What skill set do you have to have to be a pro in anything? 
much less a baseball catcher. He relayed that to being um, a soldier, a spy yeah. for the United States. It was that same mindset. He was a competitor, cool under pressure. You know, I think that's interesting too. He took those baseball skills. You're essentially playing a game, right? but he applied them to things that would ultimately determine the outcome of world history. I, listen, I, I, we've, we've had lots of stories. Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorites. And I know I've said that a few times um, in regards to some of your episodes, but this is one of my favorites. It's so all-encompassing. History, baseball. I mean, you could have an entire course based on uh, the history of baseball itself and how, how it's tied into you know civic issues and those kind of things. I, I start to picture this guy in, in a little bit of a different way after you said you know, yeah. he's a little clumsy. He's obviously very eclectic. Uh, but he's a competitor. He's he thinks on his feet. So I'm 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 picturing like a like a Bond almost. Yeah. You know, very. Yeah, and, although although the clumsy aspect, I think maybe a little bit nerdy and mm -hmm. and um and not very poised. Or I'm saying not not poised. I shouldn't say that. I should say like polished. Right, not very right. polished. Now he's not like a, a homegrown. Mm -hmm. Hey, you're a you're a spy. Since he was a backup Phil his backup. entire life. Right. Exactly. And, you yeah. know, it, to to their credit, the Baseball Hall of Fame was quick to point out that they have had you know numerous displays, stories, things done on him. But I think where you and I are coming from, that's great. And anytime you can go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is a museum, and learn and want to go off and learn on your own, even after you've left. But I think the, the point of having him inducted and stand alongside the best players of the game is that his story needs to be highlighted. Right. And he needs to be kind of revered for the sacrifices that he made. Absolutely. And, you know, I... <laughs> Let's say all, all said and done, we get his name out there and, yeah. and uh, they say no. Mm -hmm. But the, the worst they could say is no, right? You've said that in the past. Um, at least his name is now on the ballot box. That's it. And That's it. And you know what? Missing Chapter podcast listeners, stay tuned. I, I, I don't think this story is over yet. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Shaw. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.